Terror and Khalistan, they go together and they go a long way back. And today we have someone who's written a book called Blood for Blood. And uh, that traces this uh, origin and rise of the Khalistani terrorism right to this day. And his uh, name is Terry Milewski. He is a very famous broadcaster with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And uh, without wasting much time, let's go in. And before that, I just uh, uh, request you to remember that we have this uh, annual Jaipur Dialogue Summit coming up, uh, the Jaipur Dialogue Summit 2021. And that's from December 1 to 5. And uh, the theme is India in 2030. And just a reminder, we finalized our schedule and we'll probably upload it by tomorrow. And uh, uh, even then, of course, uh, there may be a lot of last minute tweaks. But the session sponsorships and the title sponsorships are still on. Okay, let's go in. Namaste to all viewers and a very, very good morning out there in Canada and in the U.S. to Terry Milewski and to our very own Vibhuti Jha. So Terry, you've written this great book, which I haven't had the occasion to read. So what I would uh, do is that I'll uh, hand over this to Vibhuti ji to do a little bit of introduction because you are here on the Jaipur Dialogues for the first time and I think Vibhuti ji will do well to introduce Terry properly to the Jaipur Dialogues audience. Uh, thank you. Thank you Sanjay ji. Thank you Terry for joining us in Jaipur Dialogue for your first foray and I would hope and trust that this conversation and our association, this conversation will continue over many more sessions. So the Blood for Blood is the book, but I had the chance to read the article that the Canadian think tank uh, published, uh, which you had authored. And, uh, you know, consequently, the Blood for Blood book came about. I wanted to introduce Terry to the audiences of Jaipur Dialogue, as Sanjayji was talking about. He's a veteran, injured, veteran journalist, investigative journalist. As a young man, he has traveled in more than 50 countries including India, where he had the chance to interview Mrs. Indira Gandhi when he was the prime, she was the prime minister. So Terry is somebody who knows the insights, the stories within. There are stories maybe we do not know anything about. But the question that arises is there is a very interesting timeline in his article when he talks about that in 1973, Tarek Fatah whom we know very well, had talked about the description of Khalistan from Mr. Bhutto, who wanted to break India following 1971 war. It's very interesting as well, because in 1971, one of my school seniors was in the signals department, signals corps, and he came after the Bangladesh war and told me in Pune that all the 96,000 soldiers who had surrendered, they had felt extreme humiliation 
that they had surrendered to the Hindu army of India. So that was the ultimate insult and each one of them took a vow to break India as well. So this story is not new. The seeds of that have been sown for a very long time. And 1977 December, it happened with me when a Sikh friend of mine who had never been to Punjab blurted out and talked about establishment of Khalistan and a lot of work is happening overseas. Mm. Putting this perspective in, in line, it is important for us to know. Okay. Yeah. Terry was investigating the Air India bombing as well. So Terry, do, do share about this as much in detail as you can. Well, yeah, if I can just uh, chip ahead. in, yeah, uh, uh, to ask this question, Terry, what made you write this book? Um, well, first, thanks very much for the opportunity. Um, I, I, I'm looking forward to this. Um, the short answer is that uh, I wanted to set the Khalasan movement generally and particularly Canada's experience with it in uh, the contemporary context uh, where uh, truth and reality and facts are increasingly under siege, on the defensive, under assault by people who think that truth is whatever you want it to be, you can make up whatever you like, and if you repeat it often enough, um, lots of people will believe it. Uh, and uh, that's relevant in this uh, context because at the moment, uh, there is a sort of last ditch attempt. Although in India, India, many people know and understand that the Khalistan movement basically fizzled out uh, as a significant force uh, 30 years ago. It hasn't fizzled out in the diaspora, particularly in Canada and the UK, where there is a movement to revive it and also to rewrite the history, to falsify the history by introducing an aggressive campaign of lies to suggest that, for example, the signature most disastrous, most catastrophic terrorist attack ever launched by the Khalistan movement in the 80s was, of course, done in Canada, where two bombs were placed on two planes destined for Air India flights on opposite sides of the world. One blew up on the ground in Tokyo and killed two baggage handlers as it was being moved to the target Air India flight to Mumbai. And uh, the other, of course, as everyone knows, uh, the Kanishka bombing. Uh, the other blew up on flight Air India's Flight 182 uh, from Montreal to London Heathrow on June 23rd of 1985. And the campaign of lies that I described is designed to convince contemporaries, younger Sikhs living in Canada and elsewhere around the world that this did not happen as described, uh, that our guys didn't do it. They're innocent. So much so, in fact, so innocent are they that there are people in Canada today at a very significant, important big city, Gurdwara, in the great Canadian province of British Columbia, who put up huge life-size posters of the mastermind of that bombing, Talvinder Singh Parma, a Punjabi Canadian. He was a Canadian citizen who came in the 70s 
uh, and was radicalized and organized this massacre, 329 innocent civilians who had nothing whatsoever to do with the Khalistan struggle for or against, uh, mostly Indo-Canadians, including 33 Sikhs, by the way, uh, were blown out of the sky and murdered, uh, as well as those two Japanese baggage handlers. And the idea of the campaign of lies is to pretend that Pama was a big hero, a martyr of the Sikh nation, I quote, a great man, I quote again, the president of the temple, uh, and a model for Sikh youth. And this campaign uh, and this glorification of a man who was, in fact, uh, the author of the deadliest terrorist attack in Canadian history, indeed, the deadliest terrorist attack anywhere until 9-11, uh, this campaign is so toxic, so belligerent, so provocative, uh, and really so grotesque uh, to glorify this man as a big hero um, when his only achievement in life was a massacre of innocents uh, seemed worth writing about uh, to correct the record. Uh, to make it clear that this is an outrageous lie, that there is abundant, plentiful, tested, hard evidence uh, of his guilt, that he's uh, not to be considered innocent at all. Uh, his bomb maker was convicted three times. We know that he made the bombs for Parma. We know that those were the bombs that blew up, not some other bombs. Uh, in short, that we should push back on this campaign of lies uh, to be clear that yes, Canada certainly dropped the ball, to put it mildly, uh, on this matter by failing to prevent the bombing when uh, Canadian authorities had the bombers under surveillance for months before the bombing. And Canada failed again by failing to deliver a full measure of justice to the victims' families in the wake of the bombing. And now it's failing again by not pushing back hard, um, politicians, for example, uh, willingly still go to Vaisakhi parades organized by the temple in Surrey, British Columbia, that has these full life-size posters glorifying um, Shahid Talvinder Singh Parma. And the politicians go and smile and wave at the parade as pictures of gun-toting assassins uh, go past on the parade floats. They don't push back. They like the votes. And if they keep their mouths shut, they may get those votes. Uh, so because this continues, uh, it, uh, it needs, as I say, some pushback. And some of that is contained in, uh, in this book. I, I know you haven't had a chance to look at it, but it's pretty short. It's only about a couple of hundred pages. I, I made my journalistic career mostly in television. So they give you two minutes and fifteen seconds, and if you go two, and if you give, if you go two twenty, they're they're mad at you. They demand that you cut out that extra five seconds. So I, I'm used to making it short, and so I'm, I'm sorry for going on so long in answer to your first question. No, we have changed the TV narrative, Terry. So you have time to talk, and we want to listen. You can talk freely, Terry. Yes. Absolutely freely. There are there are no. no Time barriers, yeah. And no edits either. It's live. <laughs> it's live. It's going live. You, you shouldn't have, I, never tell a, a television reporter that he can have unlimited time because he'll take it. 
but but uh, I, 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 let, let me just add one thing. There is now, as you know, uh, a campaign by a group called Seeks for Justice to organize a, a referendum uh, among Sikhs to vote for or against uh, uh, the concept of an independent state called Khalistan, land of the pure. Uh, and um, I personally, I get into trouble sometimes when I'm on Indian media by saying this, but I personally uh, don't have a problem with people having a peaceful vote. Uh, let them vote, let them campaign. It shouldn't be, in my view, criminalized merely to advocate that people should express their opinion on whether or not to have Khalistan. After all, uh, last time out, uh, when there was a vote in Punjab, the last elections in 2017, for example, um, there was a separatist party in the race, uh, Simranjit Singhman's uh, splinter group of the Shiromani Akalidal, as uh, some of you will know. And uh, here's what they got. 0.32% of the vote. One, not quite one third of 1%. Uh, a really microscopic, almost invisible fraction uh, of the vote. In fact, none of the above, nota, which is a category on the election returns, got more than twice as many votes as uh, the separatists got. Now, um, let, let's remember that uh, separatism wasn't an issue in the campaign. Uh, it, the campaign wasn't run about that. So some people will say, well, you can't count that. Uh, but that's exactly the point. It's no longer an issue in Punjab. Uh, nobody's talking about it. People basically forgot the separatists. And this has been, it's been a downhill slide for 30 years for them. It's only in the diaspora that this continues. So the question that now arises, as Sikhs are being urged to go out and vote in this referendum, is whether they can do any better than that. For example, uh, we're being told um, that uh, thousands of Sikhs have turned out in the UK uh, to vote in this referendum. Uh, and if that's true, uh, well, perhaps they'll get to 1% of the Sikhs in the UK. We don't know. There are 400,000 Sikhs in the UK and half a Can million I... in Canada. Uh, I was told, you... one, one sec, I was told that... Uh, uh, about 150 had turned up, 150, and then they got nervous, and then they gathered a, any, anybody that they could, including Pakistanis. I believe that both sides are exaggerating. I've heard that on the very first day in London that 30,000 people showed up, and, then the, and the guys who are opposed say, oh, no, it was only 200. You heard 150. Well, <laughs> I, I think we can agree that both sides are wrong. I mean, I, I've seen pictures. It looks like... Take a mean, long. take a mean. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, one way or the other. Let, let's say that 30,000 is the true figure. I don't believe that for a moment, but let's say that's the true figure. Well, leaves an awful lot out of 400,000 Sikhs. In other words, the vast majority have no interest in this. If, the, if it's true that 30,000 showed up... Uh, it doesn't mean very much. I mean, we could have 100,000 show up in Canada and that would be 20% of the Sikh population of Canada. 
So it still wouldn't mean very much. So yes, no, that's okay. But uh, are they planning to have a Khalistan in um, uh, Canada, for instance? Well, that's a good question, uh, <clears throat> a pointed question. Um, the answer is no, they're not. They're uh, planning to have Pakistan in what they call Indian-occupied Punjab. Uh, and a lot of people um, preceded me in noticing uh, with interest that the uh, proponents of Khalistan, interestingly, make absolutely no claim on any Pakistani territory. Which is interesting because, as Indians all know, Punjab isn't just Indian Punjab. When India was divided in 1947, um, let's not do the history of partition in uh, this little broadcast, but uh, when India was divided, let's remember that the western half of Punjab and more went to Pakistan, following which the Sikh population of Khalistan plummeted precipitously. Uh, to the point where now there are, what, a few thousand, maybe 10,000 at most left in Pakistan under the pressure of forced conversions and attacks on Gurdwaras and discrimination against all religious minorities in Pakistan. But it's still interesting that no claim at all is made on Pakistani-occupied Punjab, considering that that territory now inside Pakistan contains si many sites which are absolutely fundamental to Sikh history and culture, to include Lahore, which was the seat, after all, of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, whose Sikh empire ruled that world 200 years ago. That was, that was the capital of the Sikh empire of Ranjit Singh. They're not claiming Lahore. Uh, what about Nankana site? the birthplace of Guru Nanak, no less. That's not claimed. So despite these lengthy historical and cultural and religious ties to these and many other sites in Pakistan, the Khalistanis make no claim on Pakistani territory. Um, and of course, that's probably not unrelated to the fact that Pakistan as you've already described when you mentioned the, the account of uh, Tariq Fatah as a young journalist hearing Zulfikar Ali Bhutto talk about tearing off a piece of India, which he would make, which he called Khalistan, in retaliation for the 1971 uh, loss of what became Bangladesh, previously East Pakistan. Uh, that... Um, that Pakistani role uh, is crucial, the Pakistani role in the Khalistan struggle, because there isn't anywhere else that uh, Khalistani militants, uh, during the course of their struggle, were able to hide out, get weapons, medical care, safe haven. Uh, Pakistan has always been the great enabler, the big brother, if you will, of the Khalistan movement, and uh, that's not over. That was a very good point. Uh, the important element also is that how the, the terrorist elements take shelter and protection in democratic societies and use their so-called democratic aspirations 
to fight against the equally liberal democracy that you and I are. So be it Canada, be it US, be it UK, they come here in the name of freedoms. Uh, all they want to do is impose their conditionalities. So my inquiry with particularly reference to Canada is that these people are bringing a lot of criminal elements in the countries that they live in. And I'm talking about Canada specifically, where Justin Trudeau does Bhangra all over the place. And you alluded to that earlier on. So the question here is, again, is that how they are, they are destabilizing the existing peaceful community that Canada is, essentially is, a welcoming community that Canada is. What should the Canadian government do, given the fact that they have deep tentacles in the Canadian political system? Um, it's true that these tentacles exist. It's also true that Canada remains a free speech democracy and that I personally would defend the right of Sikhs or anyone else to campaign for their self-determination. Uh, we've no objection if the Kurds want their own country. We've no objection if the Catalans want their own country or the Scots want their own country. And um, it, let them campaign, as I say. I, I know this is not popular in India, but I would say let them campaign for Khalistan. What I object to is the lies. That I won't, I won't tolerate. It is wrong. Let, let, let me tell you exactly what I'm getting at in a, in a short anecdote, if I may. A friend of mine whose father was a witness in the Air India trial, except he would have been a witness, except that he was murdered before he could testify. And his son, I'm speaking of Tara Singh Hare, who was a witness, and his son, Dave Hare, tells this story of being approached by a young girl, I think she was probably 14, 15 years old, who asked him, Mr. Hare, why do you refer to the Air India bombers as terrorists when they're really heroes? She said, they're heroes. And he said to her, well, what about the victims? I mean, what about the victims' families? I mean, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, I never thought of that. I never thought of that. So being angered by the lying about these events is relevant today because the lies in some cases, as in the case of that young girl, are working. And here comes another generation believing these lies. I, I personally have been in a, in a taxi in Vancouver during the course of the Air India trial. And the driver was a young guy from Punjab, he's Sikh, but he was clean shaven. He was a secular guy, didn't really have much, if any, of a Punjabi accent. He, he, he'd grown up in Canada and he's driving a taxi and he picks me up outside the courthouse and he recognizes me from the television. And he, we get to talking about the trial and he refers to one of the accused, Raputaman Singh Malik, who was uh, the alleged financier of the Baba Khalsa, the terrorist group which blew up Air India. And the driver looks over his shoulder at me and says, yeah, well, one thing about Malik, 
he got revenge. So here's another example of how the lies are working. This young Canadian thinks that it was a good thing to wipe out the lives of 331 completely innocent civilians who had nothing whatsoever to do with the Khalistan struggle, who were mostly Indo-Canadians, including 33 Sikhs, because he was getting revenge. And that's okay. Uh, now, this verge, to me, this verges on insanity. That's what we're up against. Uh, if I may, uh, Terry, why do you think uh, that a free speech democracy like Canada just seems to kind of genuflect in front of uh, all these violent people? After all, a free speech democracy is supposed to discourage violence and not encourage it. I mean, is uh, can this be explained only by the voting compulsions? Uh, no, that's not enough. There's an, not a sufficient explanation, is it? Um, let's remember, when, we, when, I, when I say that Canada is a free speech democracy, that means that I defend the right of any Khalistani to peacefully explain his point of view and campaign for what he believes in. That's perfectly fine with me. However... I also have free speech. The politicians also have free speech. They are free, if they wish, to say, wait a minute. Guess what? I am not going to show up at your Vaisakhi parade and smile and wave as uh, martyr posters of your great hero, Talvinder Singh Parma, go riding through the streets of Surrey, British Columbia. I, 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 I'm not going to go to celebrations at the mosque if they put up pictures of Osama bin Laden. I mean, that I would be regarded as crazy. That would be electoral suicide. So the politicians are all free to make their speech too. My problem is that they don't. With very few exceptions, they don't get up and walk out. If you're going to play that game, if you're going to pretend to the next generation that these people are heroes for blowing up a plane load of civilians, uh, then I, I, I'm not going to be part of it. I'm going to denounce what you're doing and saying. I'm going to ask you to take down, not compel, but ask, ask you to take down the obscene martyr posters glorifying this lunatic who killed all those innocent people. And I'm not going to show up next year if you put it back up. They all have freedom of speech. So if you're asking me what should Canada do, I should say it should uphold freedom of speech for everyone, not just for Khalistanis. The one thing that happens invariably in these, uh, under the banner of freedoms, you know, like as someone said very, very succinctly, that criminals and antisocial elements take advantage of the compassion of the laws of the society and the compassion of yours and mine. And the easy resort these people do is to resort to violence. 
negotiation comes later, if at all. How do we address that scenario? Because everywhere in the farmer's bill that happened or whatever happened, the Khalistani forces were indulging in violence. If anybody spoke for the farmer's bill, they were going and attacking them. How do we, how does the free society like Canada, India, UK, US tolerate all this stuff in the name of freedom and the rights? Uh, is, the, is the enemy destabilizing us using our own tools? Um, the short answer is yes, they're certainly trying. And in many cases, they're succeeding. You speak, for example, of violence by Khalistanis. We've talked about their India cases and many other cases. Um, take, for example, this was before uh, Air India. Uh, take the case of uh, my friend Balraj Diol in Toronto, who uh, in, I believe, April of uh, 1985, uh, before the bombing of Air India, uh, endorsed the uh, Rajiv uh, Gandhi Longawal agreement, a compromise agreement between uh, some of the Sikhs of Punjab and the central government. And uh, he was uh, met in his parking lot late at night by five guys with baseball bats and hockey sticks who beat him nearly to death for the crime of saying, give peace a chance. He had a Hindu Sikh forum, as he called it. And together they, they called a press conference and said, you know, we should cut down on the violence, give peace a chance. And for that sin, he was beaten almost to death. He was left for dead and was lucky to live and tell the tale. Uh, another case, Ujjal Assange, uh, elected politician for 20 years, living proof that if you go against the Khalistanis, you can still get elected. He was elected and re-elected for 20 years in British Columbia. He's retired now from politics. And uh, in both of these cases, this is the reason I mentioned them. In both of these cases, the Canadian legal system did precisely nothing to the perpetrators. They got off. There were technicalities. I'll spare you the details. Uh, the legal system seemed to be flabby, soft. And then the obvious example is Air India. It gets very technical, and I don't want to bore our viewers too much with this, but let, let, let me try to do it in a nutshell. This was a case of the utmost seriousness of the deadliest attack on aviation in history until 9-11. This was a massive catastrophe. And they wanted it to be bigger. They wanted two planes, not one. The other bomb blew up early on the ground. That's why only two baggage handlers were killed. But it should have been 500 instead of 330 people. In that case, there were numerous testimonies which were extremely incriminating, which were thrown out on technicalities. The evidence was completely discarded for technical reasons, which if I tried to explain them to you, you would still have a very hard time understanding. Because one of the witnesses, for example, testified about one of the suspects coming to her house late at night, the, the night before the bombs were checked in at Vancouver Airport. He was banging on her door late at night saying he needed to borrow her car because he wanted to take bags to the airport. 
But don't worry, I'll bring the car back because I'm not going anywhere, only the bags are going. Oh, that's interesting. And he went on, but if I am caught, you'll never see me again. Oh, so she knew what was going on. She knew he was up to no good and she refused him the use of her car. Now, this evidence was corroborated by other evidence, by people who did not know her, no opportunity to coordinate their stories, who described, I'm speaking now of Tara Singhaya, the murdered witness, who described how he had overheard a confession by one of the accused in which he said, yeah, well, one of our group in the Baba Khalsa got scared at the last minute and backed out. He was supposed to take the bombs to the airport. So we were stuck. We needed, we needed to get, we needed a car to get the bombs to the airport. Well, it's unimaginable that somehow two independent witnesses could have dreamed up this same scenario unless it was real. That it's vanishingly unlikely that they would have invented this same thing because what he said corroborated what she said. Now we have an explanation. Why is he banging on her door late at night trying to get the bombs to the airport? And in turn, those accounts were in details were corroborated by other witnesses. All of that evidence, that whole damning account, the knock on the door, only the bags are going, I'm not going. All of that evidence was thrown out by the judge. It was disregarded as though it never happened. Why? Because she was threatened and she refused to repeat the story on the witness stand. She was absolutely convinced that like Tara Singh Hare, who was murdered, that she and or her two children would be murdered if she opened her mouth. So because she, she was too frightened to repeat the story on the witness stand, the evidence was thrown out, notwithstanding that she had previously told it repeatedly and signed statements in the presence of the RCMP corroborating this story. She told that story to a government security officer who got her to tell the story on the condition that her name would not be revealed. He was just a spy. He wasn't a policeman. He wasn't gathering evidence. He just was an intelligence officer briefing the government. Now, I've told you what I, I promised would be a brief version of the story, but we have a, a, a pretty friendly legal system which refuses to consider, even to consider evidence of that kind because the court encouraged intimidation of witnesses. It rewarded the intimidation of that witness. That intimidation, that death threat was allowed to succeed. So the next time you're charged with murder, you know exactly what to do, don't you? Threaten to kill the witness. That's right. So I, I'm sorry this is not a very satisfying answer to your question, Vibhuti, but, but this is the truth. I mean, case after case after case, I've skated over the cases 
the, the beating of Diol, the beating of Dessange, the Air India case. There are others. There was another Air India bombing that was being plotted out of Montreal. That case went on for 12 years of litigation, and they got off in the end. Why? Because of a lack of disclosure by the prosecution who refused to reveal the identity of an informant, who would, of course, been killed if he had talked. And then there was another case where uh, they were uh, Palmar and the same gang basically was charged uh, in Ontario with plotting to bomb the Indian Parliament and take hostages, wiretap evidence. And the warrant to get the wiretap was authorized by a judge on the basis of an affidavit from an informant. And the judge ordered the prosecution to reveal that name, to reveal the name of the informant to the defense. And the prosecution said, we can't do that. He'll be killed. So the case was thrown out. And so, and so that's the story. Again and again and again, these cases went nowhere. Terrorism, Canada became the place where terrorism cases went to die. That's a, that's a powerful statement to say that terrorism cases against terrorists died in Canada. And that's what is worrisome because the ordinary law-abiding citizens feel threatened. And as you rightly said, as you alluded to that, that they resort to violence and threats in the name of their own rights. And that brings to a very important question about the role of politicians. They bend backwards to accommodate all these fissy paris and criminal elements, so much so that when Captain Amrinder Singh, as the Chief Minister of uh, Punjab, had a, has told Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, that he was, by his acts and volitions, supporting Khalistanis, separatists, and uh, terrorists in Canada, nobody paid attention to that. Justin Trudeau was still doing his bhangra. Um, there are two sides to that story, if I may. Please. Um, <clears throat> Captain Amarinda uh, overstepped the evidence. We don't do ourselves any favors in uh, resisting the lies of the Khalistanis by indulging ourselves in exaggerations. I'm not accusing Captain Amarinda of a lie. I'm saying that when he said that cabinet ministers in Trudeau's cabinet were Khalistani sympathizers, I would say that he lacked evidence. Um, he, he, he went beyond what he knew, uh, which is unhelpful because if you can't prove it, then you're not, you're not really achieving anything. Um, however, I would also say that uh, he was correct in general in suggesting that the liberals had, were playing footsie, let's say, with the Khalistanis, uh, that they indulged the Khalistanis for, uh, because they like the vote bank, uh, and also that the liberals, liberal party of Justin Trudeau are not alone in this. Conservatives, liberals, and what we call in Canada a New Democratic Party, that is the leftist party, uh, which is now led by Jagmeet Singh, uh, a Sikh uh, who 
has a spotty record on this topic, to put it politely, uh, they're all guilty of not really understanding this issue, not understanding how they're being entangled by Khalistanis in things like showing up to a Vaisakhi parade that honors and glorifies Sikh terrorists. See, there the evidence is, I, I, I'm very careful, as you've noticed, to base what I'm saying on hard evidence. When I say that Talvinder Pama is a Khalistani terrorist, I base it on hard evidence, tested in court proceedings for about eight years, backed up by documents and witness testimony. Uh, in a criminal trial, in a judicial inquiry, I back it up. I could not say that for any of Trudeau's ministers. So I don't. So, uh, I, I, in other words, I'm saying let's stick to the facts. Uh, Captain Amarinda went a little bit far. He did relent, by the way. He was aiming his criticism, among others, at the then uh, defense minister, Hajit Sajjan, uh, who yes, was the son, is the son uh, of a prominent separatist leader, uh, leader of the World Sikh Organization, uh, who was prominent in some squabbles at the temple in Vancouver. But I've never seen or heard Hajit Sajjan himself say or do anything overtly Khalistani or separatist or do anything objectionable uh, that Captain Amarindo could have complained about. And he, uh, Captain Amarindo, to his credit, did relent and agree to receive Haji Sajjan when he came on another visit uh, with Trudeau. And, you know, there's a picture of them smiling and shaking hands. Maybe it wasn't much more than that, but uh, they got over that hump. Uh, so let's not, I'd rather not get distracted, if I may, uh, I'd rather not get distracted by things which, are, eh, well, you know, it goes both ways and there are two sides to that story. I'd rather focus on the hard news. And the hard news is that in Canada, Canadian politicians of all parties routinely tolerate the glorification of proven terrorists. That's a problem. That's the real problem. Okay, if I might ask... Uh... All these Khalistanis that you have in Canada, does any one of them, okay, they say that they want a separate Khalistan. Just, uh, just taking, uh, being a devil's advocate, suppose there is a Khalistan, will these people leave Canada and go and live there? Well, one of them was recently asked that question and her reply was yes. I'll believe that when I see it. <laughs> uh, uh, the, uh, she said that she's not a proud Canadian, although she is a Canadian. Uh, Punjabi is a little shaky, uh, better than mine, of course. But um, she said that she is not a proud Canadian because of Canada's bad record of its own uh, massacres of indigenous people during the foundations of Canada and so forth. You know, it's sort of whataboutism, if you like. <clears throat> you complain about Sikh terrorism massacring civilians. Well, what about you guys? You know, well, okay. Uh, okay. 
time. Uh, this, you know, it's it, it, it's it's what about what aboutism, but at least it gets you off the subject that she doesn't want to talk about. Uh, uh, the the problem that we face is that, uh, as Vibhuti has pointed out, um, the Khalistanis do exploit extremely well and effectively the freedoms that they enjoy in Canada, the UK, and Germany, and all over the world. Uh, and it's not clear that any of them would really want to live in the kind of theocratic uh, independent state under the thumb of Pakistan, which is the most likely scenario, if there were to be uh, a successful referendum and if the Indian government were, uh, it's hard to imagine, were, were to say, okay, fine, you want to have an independent country, go ahead, good luck, uh, have a nice day, uh, then it's very hard to see how that country would survive without the country that has sustained the Khalistan movement for what, four decades now? Pakistan. How, how many Sikhs in Punjab would, would, would want to live under the thumb of Pakistan, which is in turn under the thumb of China? Uh, doesn't sound very attractive, does it? And, and I mean, apply the test of the, the population, the number of uh, Sikhs in Pakistan. They're leaving. They're still leaving. It's as though partition is still going on. They're getting out of there. That's what, I mean, original Punjab before partition, they were talking about a couple of million Sikhs. Now in Pakistani Punjab, you're down to 10,000 or less. And there's a reason. So do you think they're really going to vote for uh, a, a Khalistan which is under the thumb of Pakistan? I very much doubt that. I could be wrong. Uh, you tell me. You're closer to the scene. You tell me if you think that they would. They well, would that's, wanna... uh, uh, that's okay. But then uh, technically also the situation of the Indian constitution is different. In the Indian constitution, secession has no place. It yes. is a union of states. Yes. Unlike the um, loose federation, theoretically, of Canada and the US, where the constituents have a right to secede. There Indeed. is no such right here. Yes. And in fact, that. Uh, that is rooted also in the pre-1947 history when there was, a, uh, I should say, a whole agitation only on that basis. In fact, that 1942 Quit India movement was rooted in that controversy. Yes. And, uh, because the Congress got caught out, so they had to kind of cover it up uh, with a movement. That's how that Quit India movement came about in 1942. Uh, okay, that's a side issue. So in India, there is no such provision. No entity, in fact, a state doesn't have an independent unity entity. The union government, uh, the union has the right to actually create smaller states out of the bigger states, merge two states, turn states into union territories. So it's a, a very much a, a unitary system. Yes. And with the, the, the central government. Unit, unitary system with, I should say, 
features of federalism. Yes. And the features of federalism strictly uh, along the separation of powers according to the three lists that are provided. So you have independent uh, state subjects and you have union subjects and then you have common subjects. So that's how the constitution of India is configured. And that is why there is a bit of a mismatch when India says that they will not tolerate this because that is completely against their constitution. It actually goes against the integrity and sovereignty of the country. That's not the case either in the UK or in Canada or in the US. And I think that is where there is a bit of divergence in understanding. Yes, and I, I think it's relevant. And I think that it's the, I mean, constitutionally speaking, it is the duty of the central government to keep the country together. Absolutely right. Uh, and, and there's, there's no question. Of course, I mean, politics is always the art of the possible. And, uh, you know, there were people who said that about Scotland. Uh, and there are people who say that about Kurdistan and so on. Um, it, 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 it's, it, but it's probably not legality or constitutional propriety I don't think that explains the hostility of most Sikhs to the Khalistan movement. I mean, if we go back for for a moment to the voting figures, that yes, tiny that fraction, I agree. I, I agree. Yeah, that, yeah the tiny that, fraction. That point is well taken. That I mean, they well remember. Taken. I was talking not from the point of view of the Sikhs, but I was talking from the point of view of the Indian government. Indeed, I I, I, I get that, but uh, I'm just saying that. There's an even better reason uh, for, for the antipathy of most Sikhs in Punjab to the separatist movement, and that is what they remember of what happened in the 80s and the early 90s when 21,000 people died, their neighbors, their friends, their families, in the armed insurgency by the Khalistani militants. They remember. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I have. Uh, can you? Can I just uh, ask you, uh, Terry, uh, to provide a little bit of focus on how it is in the UK, because I believe that is also part of your book. Uh, I don't have very much about the UK in my book. I I, I do have a, a, a little bit. I'm not expert on the UK. I'm reluctant to opine on uh, where they're going with this referendum. I've seen a lineup. Um, at one of the recent uh, voting events. Uh, it remains to be seen if they get to a significant percentage of the Sikh population of the UK. But I will say that there is a, there is a, uh, a parallel, parallel to Canada. They cooperate across the Atlantic, uh, a Khalistani movement in the UK, which seems to be quite lively and has attracted some younger people. Uh, we're not just talking about people who emigrated in the 1980s uh, and remember massacres and the terrible times of the 1980s and have sort of been frozen in a time warp. I'm talking about people who have been recently radicalized uh, and uh, believe that uh, India is, is the devil, uh, it is a, that it's a fascist and genocidal government uh, which must be resisted at all costs and so forth. Uh, but I'm convinced that it is an even smaller minority of the Sikh population of the UK than it is in Canada. 
And I know that in Canada, which I do know more about, uh, it's a very small minority indeed. I mean, the great mass of Sikhs, uh, but they're one of the most successful immigrant communities in Canada, Bana. They've been successful as they have been in India, in the professions, in all kinds of fields, in business, in the bureaucracy, in the law. They've done extremely well for themselves. We are talking not about Sikhs. We are talking about a small subsection of the Sikh population of Canada and the UK. And I'm sorry I can't tell you more about what's happening in the UK. Uh, I do know that some of what happened in Canada was paralleled very closely. I described, for example, the murder of Tara Singh Heyer. Uh, they knew that he knew a lot. They knew that he was going to testify against them. They knew that he was a threat to the Air India bomb plot, and he was eliminated. Uh, and he had a newspaper. He was a newspaper publisher. So he had the means, and he had already exploited those means to unveil some of what he knew about the bomb plot. Guess what? His friend, Tarsim Singh Burwal, the editor of Desh Pardesh in Southall, which is a heavily Sikh neighborhood of West London, was also assassinated, closing up his office one night. Cold, was it in January, I, I guess? 19, well, the date will come back to me. And uh, he was shot as he locked up his office and eliminated. Uh, so there is, um, there's a parallel history. Uh, and no doubt there are other cases that I should be aware of that I'm not. Uh, but I will, I will just say that um, the minority, as small as it is in both countries, of uh, Khalistanis is, uh, on the evidence, extremely vigorous. Is it vigorous or violent? I do not know, but I well, have... <laughs> uh, You see, um, that too is an area where we have to be careful. Um, since the assassination of Tara Singh Heyer in 1998, the Khalistanis have been more careful about engaging in violence. Now they're more likely to send lawyers after you than they are to send men with baseball bats. Uh, and uh, they seem to have money to spend on lawyers. Uh, cases are typically quite frivolous, but the idea is to tie you up in court forever and make you spend money on lawyers and discourage other people from repeating uh, the same stories. Um, but they've been careful, and to their credit, they've been they know that violence uh, disgraced their movement in the 80s and 90s, and they're trying to stay away from it now. Um, so I, I, I would be careful about uh, accusing them of being violent today. I'm accusing them of glorifying those who did commit violence, horrific violence, in the past. I have one one question about uh, you know you have. Uh, Vibhuti ji, I must warn you that we are out of time. We are out of time. Almost out of time. Yes. So this, this is the last, last, last inquiry, particularly since Terry, you have very been very categorical that Pakistan is behind Khalistan. Now, knowing what we know, without going over more of evidences and facts, knowing what we know. Why are countries like United States, UK, Canada, 
bending backwards, accommodating Pakistan's belligerence and open confrontation with India on this matter, using Sikhs as a tool. Politics apart, why are these countries accommodating? IMF is giving $6 billion loan to bail them out. Why is Pakistan such a soft boy, despite harboring, training, home to all the banned organizations, including Osama bin Laden? Why is Pakistan treated with kid gloves by the three prominent democracies of the world? Well, I'm, I, I'm mindful of Sanjay's warning about the time because we could spend an hour just on that question and you know it. That's uh, why I said we will talk again. The, yeah, <laughs> but we need to know something. Yeah. The short answer is that there's not, uh, the, the Western countries see very little alternative but to indulge in Pakistan. There, and of course, there's a great deal of history. Uh, Pakistan was, of course, an ally in Afghanistan against the Soviet occupation back in the day. Um, Pakistan was necessary not just for the United States supply of its troops in Afghanistan uh, for 20 years, but so was Canada and the UK uh, also reliant. Um, how were they supposed to get to Kandahar if, if not going through Pakistan? Uh, and uh, or at the very least over flying Pakistan. So uh, there, there are major geostrategic reasons you and I might agree that they're not good enough, these reasons, but there are reasons that say, you know, it's got to be a short answer. There are reasons. I, let's agree that they're not very good reasons why the West indulges Pakistan. Above, and, and, and the most difficult question to answer is what's the alternative exactly? I mean, do what, what, we, we cut off Pakistan and see it completely collapse? I mean, it's already a client state of China. I think uh, we'll let that be for some other time. Yes. And uh, we would uh, go to the audience questions. We have a few. Uh, 